matter that much. Uh, the text for today is Luke 1, 39 through 64. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt within her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed art you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill her promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zachariah, But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. So like I mentioned, Advent's kind of funny this year because uh, Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday. So uh, no biggie, it just means that we're going to have to mash some songs or candles together. So Zachariah is going to get a little bit of uh, short shrift because I want to make sure to talk about uh, angels and shepherds and give them their due. But uh, there's two kind of takeaways from last week from the stuff that we talked about around uh, Zachariah. So who does Zachariah represent? He represents... The remnant of Israel, in some senses, he's committed, but you know, like things aren't great. Uh, uh, you know, Caesar's installed Herod. Herod's like packed the uh, religious hierarchy with people who are kind of extensions of his rule and his government. Uh, and two, the other theme from last week is, uh, you know, Advent has this beautiful theme that Zechariah kind of kicks off about the relationship between songs and silence. So. More on that in a bit. Zechariah plays an important role in our story for today. As you recall from last week, he's a priest and he was a member of a, I don't know, a kind of outcast tribe or order. He's likely poor. He was of uh, low social status in the Jewish hierarchy and he wins the lottery. He gets to go into the temple and light the incense, you know, just like the Benfields getting to light the candles. Pretty big deal. And uh, an angel, specifically Gabriel, appears to him and announces to him that he's going to have a son, and his son, uh, John, is going to declare the coming of the Lord. And the thing that's interesting about that interaction, if understandable, is that Zachariah is a little bit skeptical, remember? So he's like, ah, well, how can this be, yada, yada, yada. And so Gabriel says, all right, well, until everything that comes to uh, 
that I've promised has come to pass, uh, in, in, including the fact that you're going to have a son and name it John, you're going to be uh, struck, struck dumb. You won't be able to speak. So as we see from the end of this section of the Christmas story, you know, the verse we have for today ends with Zachariah scribbling on a papyrus or on the ground or, I don't know, maybe tablet, so maybe he's got an iPad or something. Uh, the child is to be named John, and as soon as he says the child is to be named John, his mouth immediately opens and, and he begins to sing. So why all the singing? I think there's probably kind of three things about all these songs. First, songs are traditionally associated with worship. So, uh, more than that, they're associated with worship throughout the history of Israel. And that's not just for the normal liturgical reasons that it seems like whenever we get together and we want to worship God, somehow it seems to add something to, you know, put some tone and put some breath behind the words that we're saying as a kind of more fitting way of expressing ourselves about God. But throughout the kind of whole of salvation history, throughout the whole of the Bible, in fact, there are these kind of songs that represent turning points in and marking points in the kind of story of the gospel. And it's weird, but those songs generally tend to have a fairly consistent theme. It's like 80s hair metal. It kind of is always about the same couple things. And so the first song in the Bible is in Exodus. It's the song that the people of Israel sing when they uh, uh, you know, have the victory over Pharaoh. The last song in the Bible the saints at the throne in Revelation. So upon their deliverance, you know, that you could almost say it's kind of the story of these different songs. Upon their deliverance uh, from Egypt in Exodus 15, Moses and the Israelites burst into song. Well, uh, I will sing unto the Lord. We used to sing it as a youth group hymn. I don't know if you all did. I will sing unto the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider has been thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt it. So, you know, one of the kind of beginning songs of the whole tradition is a celebration for God, delivering God's people from evil, from Pharaoh, uh, from doing something miraculous, celebrating God's power, celebrating God's provision, etc. And then the last song in the Bible and in, in Revelation is the song of Moses and the Lamb. So that's Revelation 15, 3. And John has just kind of witnessed the saints overcoming the power of the beast so they stand by a sea of fiery glass, and there's something described like fiery gla- glass, and they sing, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory, glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So there's this kind of pattern in these songs. In the, in the Bible, they typically combine not only an element of worship, but an element of celebration, And usually it's an element of celebration for being set free from something. They almost have the sense of like Sabbath rest, that there's a battle that's been won in one way or another. And because the battle has been won, folks burst into song as much as they, like, you know, sometimes it feels like the Bible's like a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical or something. Second, my sense is the reason why songs tend to have this pattern is that they do something that only songs can do appropriately. So in most instances where a song is celebrating a victory, it's also celebrating the incomprehensibility of God's glory. And in fact, 
those songs in some ways are a fitting response to all these different instances where God has kind of intervened in the world and done something that feels impossible at the time. Like God is intervening in the world to, I don't know, defeat death and destruction. You know, those are the things that we're kind of used to. We're used to entropy, we're used to sin, we're used to things breaking down, we're used to things, you know, getting worse, we're used to things get it being hard and getting harder. And, you know, the, the, the songs in the Bible are about God kind of breaking into the world and, and fulfilling a promise to be behind God's people and taking that world and kind of turning it on its head and making it right, making it new, making it different. And so, you know, uh, these songs are not only about celebration and worship, but to a certain extent to me, it seems like there's something that folks in the Bible do quite regularly because, you know, we're talking about events that it just doesn't seem that normal descriptive narrative terms would get at. Maybe poetry doesn't even get at. You need the kind of combination of poetry and music to celebrate God doing something incomprehensible, unexpected, and new. And then third, decided to go three points, so I'm going full Baptist on you. (laughs) The virtue of a song is that other people can pick it up and sing it. It unites us in kind of one voice. And almost all these songs, from the one in Exodus to the one in Revelation, point back to where God's people come from, what they've been through, but they also point forward to who we can be as God's people together. And it shares, those, the, most of the songs in the Bible share that kind of element of the genre. And in fact, they generally come almost after God asks people to do incredible things, you know, run towards the Sea of Egypt with Pharaoh chasing you, or stand up to the beast, or name your kid John, or I don't know, even carry God in your belly. Songs come from these moments where it's hard for us to even imagine that the incomprehensibly beautiful miracle of God's intervention does something that we couldn't expect that makes things right. So when Zechariah does the incredible thing that God asks of him, believe that he'll have a kid and that that kid will announce the coming of the Messiah and name the kid John, his mouth opens and he sings and Israel gets it eventually because, you know, he stands in for Israel in some ways, like I was saying, and Israel has this history of doubting. Israel has this history of not fully trusting and then finally trusting and having a song of victory. But Zechariah, you know, he's kind of the bookends to the story of Mary. We have the guy who represents the kind of remnant of Israel and he expresses doubt and it's only after God demonstrates it that he's able to sing and speak again. But, you know, he's different from Mary. The angel comes to Mary and says, look, you know, the, the spirit is going to uh, kind of, what's the, the, the word uh, there? The spirit's going to kind of uh, come over you and overshadow you is the word and uh, make you pregnant. You're going to have a child, save the nations, yada, yada, yada. And what does Mary say? This is beautiful. Instead of doing the Zachariah thing, Mary asks a question or two, but ultimately Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. And when she says she's the Lord's servant, the word there is a word you know. It's doula. I am the Lord's female slave. And it's one that's only used in the New Testament three times. And spoiler alert, that'll become significant in a moment. But it's a beautiful parallel with Jesus' own words in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? Mary has basically said the kind of same thing he, he, he said. Not my will, but your will be done. So we know that, you know, there's something about Mary. No, there's something big going on with Mary. And it's not just for the obvious reasons that 
She's doing the opposite of what Zachariah did. And not just because we know the end of the story, but like I was just kind of saying and pointed out in Mary's sermons in the past, the Spirit overshadows her and she becomes pregnant. And that's the same word that the Septuagint uses for the act of creation. When it says that the Spirit breathed over the waters, it says the Spirit overshadowed over the waters. And so there's a real kind of strong tie here that points to the fact that there is something fundamentally new going on here, a new creation. So Mary hurries to see Elizabeth, and this greeting is one of my favorite things in the entire Bible. Elizabeth has every reason to reject Mary. She would have been ashamed to her family. She was poor. She was unwed. She was seemingly an unfaithful fiancé. She's the kind of person that would cause your family massive embarrassment and an honor culture. But Elizabeth reacts in the complete opposite way, verse 42. In a loud voice, she exclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill her promises to her. I mean, I just love that the baby John leaps in the womb. I love that Elizabeth sees Mary and knows that Mary is carrying the Lord. She sees that Mary is the vessel through which God's promises would be fulfilled. And think about the combination of terms that we already have in this story and what they would have meant to the Jewish audience that this gospel would have originally listened to this gospel. The Spirit overshadows Mary. She is the means through which God's promises are carried out. In fact, she is the bearer of them, and she declares mercy. What does that make Mary sound like? Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. She is the one who is the mercy seat. She is the one through which God's promises are carried out. She is the bearer of those promises. And the word that the, uh, the Greek Old Testament would have used to talk about what happens with God's presence at the mercy seat is overshadows. It's the same word that it uses to talk about Mary. One way to think about Mary is to see that the gospel is framing her as the new ark of the new covenant. You know, I mean, it almost makes you feel like you lean Catholic a little bit when you think about how powerful the description of Mary is here. That, that overshadow word is not just used in the Septuagint regarding creation. It's used to talk about what happens at the mercy seat. It's a signal that there's kind of a, not only a carrying out, but fulfilling of functions that were to be served by the ark and to be served by the prophets. It's a metaphor that would have been obvious to this audience. And it, you know, it is something that indicates a fundamental shift in the core of the faith. It's something that demands us rethink the conditions of the covenant. And so how does Mary kind of respond to this? Well, what Mary does, Mary sings. And so 46, Mary, Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now, I almost don't want to break up the song to talk about the individual elements of it, but I kind of got it. So Mary reflects the idea that her whole person rejoices in the Lord. And here, she is also fulfilling the role, at least as Luke tells it, uh, you know, a, 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 a young woman about Cal's age is declared the first theologian and first prophet of the new covenant. That's amazing. 
that she theorizes what this means, that she predicts what it means, and that she can talk about what it means that God has come to abide through a new ark. And, you know, whatever, did, uh, you know, whatever Mary did you know has told us about who Mary is and our kind of vision of Mary is this kind of wilting, unknowing, scared little girl. Mary, and I asked Beth if it was right to say the full word, but Mary's kind of a bad A here, if you can say that, in a sermon. Like, she recognizes her own humble state. She glorifies God, who both favors and empowers her, and she prophesies about the implications of her child for generations to come. And more than that, she speaks in the language of prophets, first by making an analogy to the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, etc. Verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear them from generation to generation. But then there is more. The role of the prophet is to do what? It's to say the thing that Israel doesn't want to hear, to speak God's truth about judgment, and more often than not, to declare that the victory of the kingdom is already won. And it's very clear Luke is framing Mary as a person who's doing all this, as a prophet. And there's tons of echoes of prophets past here. Then there's that whole kind of doula slave thing. Now, this requires you to think about the combination of Luke-Acts. But in the second half of Luke-Acts, you know, Luke-Acts, uh, what, the, the, the chapter 2, it's an interesting, and I don't think fully a coincidence, that in Acts... The author says that the mark of the new kingdom is what as it regards female slaves. Anybody remember? There's this list of all kinds of things that will happen in the coming of the new kingdom. And in the same author that writes Luke, only other time this word doula is used in the New Testament says that one of the markers of the new age is that female slaves will prophesy. So there's like volumes and volumes of papers that have been written on the structural similarities between Mary and the Magnificat and the prophecies of Elijah and Isaiah and all that stuff, and she certainly sounds prophetic here. But so far, I think Luke is making a very intentional effort to frame Mary both as the new ark of the new covenant and to frame Mary as a prophet. Look at verse 51. She, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud. In their inmost thoughts, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. This is not exactly a kind of Hallmark Channel-worthy Christmas statement. It is a declaration of war on a world that is about to be turned upside down and made right. It's like a scathing political indictment of the orders of sin and death and destruction. And it's a claim that God makes all things new, will scatter the proud, will bring down the corrupt, will uplift the humble, will feed the hungry. It is a declaration by yet-to-be-married, young, poor, socially marginal girl that the whole world was about to change because of what God had promised her. And that the humble would be elevated, and that the first would be the last, and that the kingdom would establish justice. It is a declaration of the fulfillment of the proto-evangelion, that the woman would uh, crush the head of the snake, declared basically at the beginning of history. And most importantly, it all happens because of what God will do with the descendants of Abraham. So Ark of the Covenant, prophetess, and I think there's one more, at least to me, really compelling comparison about Mary. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and its descendants, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, Luke, at least as we read it at Resurrection Church, is about remaking Israel and making it universal. It's the story of a new Israel. A new Israel needs a new ark of a new covenant. It needs a new prophet. And it needs a new king. The new king is Jesus, of course. 
But, you know, if you're going to have an Israel that has a priest, a prophet, a king, and an ark, I want you to notice something about the Magnificat, at least as it comes to prophets, priests, and kings. Luke is declaring a new Israel. We've got a new priest to kick things off in kind of Zechariah and John the Baptist. Mary's kind of serving as a new prophetess. And, of course, Jesus is going to serve as the new prophet, priest, and king. He'll be all of those, in fact. But one of the weird facts about kings is that kings require a line of succession. And prophecy says that Jesus' kingship will come out of the line of David. And as you all know, Mary is from that line. But notice something different about the song, the Magnificat. I want you to think about and listen to the Magnificat maybe differently than you, I, than you have before. I'm going to read you parts of another song without identifying it. Tell me what it sounds like. You're not allowed to answer. <laughs> Who am I, sovereign Lord? What is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if it were not enough in your sight, Lord, you have spoken about the future house of your servant with this decree, a mere human. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done great things and made it known to your servant. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations before your people who you redeemed from Egypt, who have you established as your very own forever. And now, Lord, keep forever the promise you have made conserving your servant and his house. Do as you promised that your name will be great forever. Pretty eerie parallel to the Magnificat in almost every respect. Anyone got a guess who sang that song? David. That is David's song in 2 Samuel 7. He's a singer there, and it parallels the Magnificat so closely. Not only do they both sing and belong to the same line, but they both recognize their humble beginnings. They give glory to God for establishing a new Israel and ensuring it continues for generations, that it will be one that brings about justice and that oppressors will be defeated. And for the folks hearing the Gospel of Luke, this connection would also have been blazingly clear. Not only is Mary the Ark, of the new covenant, not only is Mary a prophetess, but she is the new David passing a sovereign kingship on to the new king that is both king of and is Israel. Not because she owns it, not because of who she is, but simply because she is a bearer of God's promise and a singer of God's song. And think about how beautiful it is that David takes up a riff on Moses' song and Mary takes up a riff on David's, David's song, and soon in Luke, others too will begin to sing and to tie themselves into that beautiful history of reconstituting an Israel in song with a supreme and final prophet, priest, and king. It's for us to take up that song too. It's for us to see that it culminates in the birth of our new and final complete prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, who was and who is and who is to come. And this Christmas, this Advent, we know and we celebrate that he will come again. And my prayer is that as we prepare for Advent, we too sing his song. Amen. Questions or discussion?